Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi everyone. Uh, welcome back to the Ilmfi podcast. This is your host Shabir Hassan. Um, today is a really, really important episode. We were joined uh, by Dr. Asim Qureshi, who's an author, academic. Um, he is the director of research over at CAGE for doing some really important work. And um, yeah, our discussion uh, mainly focused on what is happening currently in Palestine. Um, but also we touched on other areas such as um, condemnation, you know, should we as Muslims condemn? Um, and, you know, we spoke about uh, what, what is happening there currently, what, what more we can do as Muslims and so much more. So I reiterate, it's a really important episode. Stick around till the end, listen, uh, take notes, inshallah. And most importantly, hope you enjoy and benefit. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Lovely to have you on. Alhamdulillah. Thank you so much for, for joining us. And um, I know, I mean, okay, I'll give you a bit of background, right, to the lead up to this whole, to this episode, to this podcast. Um, obviously, we know what's happening right now. Um, the situation, you know, by the time this episode goes out, I'm still sure that, you know, it's going to be highlighted in the media and it's still very fresh in our minds, which is what's happening in Palestine um, once again. And uh, I, I had... <laughs> So I had a, a choice of choosing like a number of guests. I could have had any kind of, uh, quite a few different guests on here today, but I just didn't have it in me to talk about anything else, if, if, that, if that makes sense. Like we could have had someone come on and talk about marriage, could have had someone come on and talk about business or whatever. It just, I just personally couldn't sit and just, you know, talk about anything apart from directing our focus towards uh, Palestine, basically. And so those of you listening, you know, that is what, Today's episode is primarily going to focus on, but not just that, but kind of wider issues as well. So, um, yeah, I thank you for for joining us. Um, I wish the circumstances could have been kind of a bit different. Um, but yeah, inshallah, the discussions we'll have will hopefully be insightful. And Unfortunately, whenever I get invited <clears throat> to anything, it's usually because something terrible is happening in the Ummah. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I don't really get uh, invited for a kind of happy Pleasant. story. <laughs> yeah, moments, yeah. Unfortunately, but Alhamdulillah, uh, it's a, in Fadlillah, you know, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Alhamdulillah. And I mean, my first question actually was, I mean, we don't really get a chance, especially like, for example, if you're called on to I mean, Channel 4 or Piers Morgan Uncensored or something like that, they're not really going to ask you this question. But since Alhamdulillah, we're Muslims, we're brothers, you know, this is a this is a different kind of platform. I can start with this question because it's something that, you know, um, I feel like we just don't ask each other enough of. It's just like, how how are you feeling in, in the midst of all this? Um, because... I myself, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it, but, you know, seeing videos, images, news, social media, all of these things, it, it really does take a toll. Uh, and not that, you know, I'm here to make anyone feel sorry for us because we're, we're not going through it, right? But yeah, how are you just feeling and processing everything? SubhanAllah, it's been um, so far 11 days um, that, you know, the latest incident began. Yeah. Um, it, it has taken me by surprise considering my, my daily work and my daily life is to deal with the trauma of people who are being hurt and abused in this ummah. So mm -hmm. it, that is my daily reality. Yeah. Um, I can't escape it every single day. It's another aspect of that happening. But it has taken me a little bit by surprise at how much my feelings and my emotions have come out so starkly over these last 11 days mm. in a way that I hadn't expected or anticipated. Um, the extent to which I've been doom scrolling um, through X, mm. um, which is the main platform that I yeah, yeah. That I use, um, and but at the same time, feeling like you know, 
there's a there is a, a moment to be present, to show my presence for the Palestinian people, to show my presence to other members of the Ummah, and also that this is an opportunity that has been sent by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to not just me but to all of us, mm-hmm. to show that we care enough to be present for the Palestinian people and. You know, kind of daily reflecting on that and having conversations with my wife in particular uh, about how, you know, kind of my feelings throughout this moment. Um, I just want to be as available as I can because I can see their suffering live taking place. Yeah. And every single time I feel down about anything, it's it's just a helpful reminder to say, okay, but what, what can you do in this moment? Mm. Could you just retweet something? Is yeah. it possible for you to do that? Because it's a small thing, right? Um, and I'm also trying to remind myself about the hadith of Prophet you know, where he gave us the gradation of of the different actions that still have belief. So even something hating something in your heart, mm. and reminding myself that actually hating something in my heart is still it's still a positive affirmative action. It's not something that is considered to be negative, mm-hmm. right? Yes, it's the lowest form of belief, but let me start from there. Yeah. How do I upgrade to speaking against it with my tongue, and how do I upgrade with doing something? So I'm constantly trying to think about that about what role can I play? And I think that really helps me a lot um, throughout this, you know, when my feelings have, have reached rage at, yeah. at, at many, many moments, especially, you know, somebody who's a parent seeing children yeah. being so utterly devastated and seeing the, the immense um, honor that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is extending to us all through these Palestinian people. Like they are so amazing, subhanAllah, the way that they, React and respond. Yeah, you, you kind of just yeah. It's it. You do have to take a moment to reflect on the the strength and the the level of their iman. You know, to to go through what they're going through. So I think you know, yeah. That's that's one thing I definitely take away from seeing the the videos and the images. Um, but yeah, it's interesting you, you use the word um, you know being available, right? Because yeah, it's it's something that um, I think you know this whole particularly on social media. I think we're playing such a key role, um, which I think sometimes we kind of underestimate, uh, whether it's, you know, an influencer, an imam, someone with a large following or literally just an average account with a few hundred followers. Um, you know, a lot of people are talking about, I was just, I've been listening to, to a lot of this stuff, you know, from analysts and experts saying how this kind of, the narrative um, it, on social media in particular is currently, you know, favoring us, you know, the, the Palestinians. Um, and how a lot of people are slowly starting to shift and people are feeling the pressure and, you know, it's having that wider kind of implication, wider, wider, wider ripple effect. Um, so do, do, do you think, like, you know, I, I've kind of mentioned mentioned that, but then, yeah, what, what's your take on, you know? You know, we're, we're the ones who are benefiting by, by, by being available. Like, you know, it's amazing because the Palestinians are telling us, we're here, we're dealing with this situation and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is blessing us every day by literally having a parade of shuhada entering, you know, who are right now flying around his arsh as green birds, right? They have very much understood uh, the program. They're with it completely. Yeah. You know, they don't need to be told what to do in the situation. They understand the obligation of resistance. They understand the obligation to defend not only the land, but the people themselves who make up the land, right? So they get get all of that. What they're saying to us is that we're taking care of our business. Are you taking care of yours, right? And that's, I think, the incredible thing that they're not saying to us, we need you. They're saying you, 
you know, you need yourselves. You need to do this for yourself because you're watching this. And while we are taking care of business, you should be taking care of your own, which is that there is obligations on us when we see this stuff. We're witnesses. Um, and with witnessing comes responsibility. And, you know, so many times in the Quran we're told about this. <laughs> so, alhamdulillah, it's an opportunity. I don't think it's necessarily anything negative. It's difficult, it's hard, but there's so many opportunities in this, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Um, okay, so before we continue, there was uh, a kind of... Um, I don't want to call it like a, usually we do a quick fire. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a bit more informal, this or that type of thing. But I wanted to keep this quick fire a bit more relevant to our discussion today. Um, obviously, you know, every news channel we, 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 we switch to, we turn to, you know, they're going to be um, covering this particular issue right now. And, you know, not everything we're necessarily going to agree with, of course. Um, so I want to read out, I've, I've chosen three statements in particular. Um, that perhaps are kind of being spread or parroted um, in the in the media, Western media currently. So I'm going to read out a statement one by one, and I just want to hear your thoughts, reflections, response, whatever you want to call it. Um, so inshallah, the, the first one is that what is happening right now in Palestine, Israel-Palestine, it's being described as a conflict. So what are your immediate thoughts when you hear the word conflict and how would you respond to that? It's not a conflict. It is um, an occupation that has been going on for 75 years by a, a settler colonial apartheid racist state that was installed by the British uh, with, the, uh, with the acquiescence of many Arab countries that surround the area. And so we can never describe it as a conflict because it's asymmetric. There is a massive power imbalance between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Okay. And so, you know, we should just really make that clear. Okay, good. And what do you think it does when, when people, the general public, hear the word conflict? Like, what does, that, what, does that, what does that do to their thinking? Right, I think that definitely gives the impression that somehow there are two sides that are equal, who are battling it out, uh, almost as if there are two standing armies on a field who are facing each other off. This isn't like that at all. Mm. Um, the Palestinians have been attempting to, to survive and to maintain the dignity of Al-Aqsa and the land for 75 years. And they've done it with great aplomb. And, you know, we should be proud of them for that. Yeah. Okay. The second uh, statement. This is not necessarily from uh, news outlets or the media. This is I'm, I'm hearing this more from public figures quite quite frequently. Those especially who are almost trying to avoid uh, discussing the issue or addressing it at all, um, even though they're being pressured by their followers and audience to, to discuss. So a lot, a lot of them share the following uh, statement. They say that um, the situation in the Middle East is complicated. Uh, it's really complicated and, and therefore I don't want to get involved and, and talk about it. What would your response to that be? I mean, there's nothing complicated about it. There was nothing complicated about France's... Uh, kind of colonization of Algeria and their resistance um, for 200 years against French colonization. There's nothing, you know, controversial or difficult or nuanced about apartheid. There was an apartheid racist state and there were people who demanded their freedom. It's very black and white. And in the same way with Palestine, it is completely black and white. There is a racist settler colonial apartheid state and there are those who have systematically 
been oppressed for 75 years. It's really that simple. Okay. And um, the final one, uh, there may be two parts to this. Let's see how it goes. Um, the final one is, you know, for, for, you, to, for you to be pro-Palestinian and to stand against Israel is for you to be anti-Semitic and to, to hate Jews, basically. I mean, first, I think we all know this is a nonsense. Um, there are many, many, many Jews who are anti-Zionist. Um, many of them, and many of them are our allies that we have worked alongside, that we have, you know, marched alongside, campaigned alongside, like, you know, so that is a nonsense. And I really don't think we should give this too much credibility because I think every time we, you know, continually talk about this as if it was a talking point worthwhile of talking about, we give credence to the fact that it's part of the conversation. It should never be part of the conversation. Mm. From our own Islamic history, you know, we know so much about the role that, you know, kind of rulers like Bayezid played and so on and so forth. You know, after the Jews were kicked out of Spain in 1492, we know like there are so many examples of how our faith has never been a barrier to us being just. What we have always had a problem with is with an ideology that believes that it can disenfranchise a people of their land, of refusal back into their homes, or refusal for those in the diaspora back into the into the region full stop. That is what we have an issue with, a, a, an actual system of apartheid. Palestinians have been very, very clear that if we create a state where there is justice for all, that we will not commit any kind of purge of Jews. They've been very, very, very clear about that almost since the very beginning. And so this idea that the two are equal to one another, absolute nonsense. Okay. Um, I said two parts because, you know, I feel like the flip side as well, especially now this is, this is you know, um, tying directly in with almost what the, the media are trying to portray to the, to the wider public is that now if you're pro-Palestinian, Okay, fair enough. Even if they don't say you're you're anti-Semitic or you know whatever, but they're almost trying to tie that in with subtly you're supporting the the resistance basically, um, and I feel like that's that's something that a lot of people now you know the general public they're kind of they're they're being brainwashed into thinking right that okay you know you must surely support them if you're with the so again what would your response be to that to support Palestine means to support the resistance and the way that they have determined for themselves that they are to resist. That's that's on them. They have their own ulema. They have their own leaders. Their leaders are making up their minds about how they frame their response. And it's so interesting for me these last almost two weeks now to watch um, members of the Palestinian Authority, Usam Zomlot, Hanan Ashrawi, um, you know, these ostensibly secular Palestinians refusing to play the politics of condemnation with the resistance. They're refusing. They're not engaging in that discussion because what they're saying effectively is do not get distracted by 75 years of occupation of 75 by this moment, right? Mm -hmm. We will support the resistance because the resistance is against that edifice and not what just happened over the last 11 days. So it's so important we listen to that to the voice of that and not start to inject, you know, some of our own kind of anxieties about the war on terror and our anxieties about the framing of terrorism and our anxieties about all of this. 
The Palestinians have decided amongst themselves that we will resist the settler colonial apartheid state. Our job is to listen to that, understand that, okay, you have a narrative, you have a methodology that you're trying to achieve. Our role is simply to, to support you in whatever you have decided for yourself. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned an interesting term, condemnation, which obviously, you know, um, we want to kind of touch on in a bit more detail uh, in this in this podcast. Sure. Um, because this, this is probably the, the almost like the number one, you know, buzzword that we're hearing now. And it's, it's been it's been ongoing for a few years, going back to, you know, what was happening with, you know, whether it was ISIS or whether it's Hamas, whatever it might be, you know, and, and obviously we're going to try and kind of frame things around recent events as well. Sure. Um, you know, on the news, whether it's, you know, let's talk about Piers Morgan, for example, he's been inviting a lot of a lot of different guests, um, pro-Palestinian, whether it's Mohammed Hijab or uh, Hussam Zomlot, as you mentioned. And, you know, the question is always posed, right? One of the first questions is, do you oppose or do you condemn what happened on 7th of October? Do you condemn? Do you condemn? Uh, this has been happening for years. And, you know, I still remember your um, interview from, from all those years back, Channel 4, Jon Snow. You know, I remember watching that. And uh, again, uh, you know, I think that for you was was quite, uh, you know, so you can describe it better, but almost like a wake up call. And that kind of, you know, uh, encouraged you to do a lot more work in this area. If you've got a book now, I, I, you know, I refuse to condemn. So, um, okay, before we get into the, the nitty gritty, let's just talk about why do you feel so strongly about this condemnation uh, and, uh, you know, what led you to, to do a lot of work in this area? So the, the question we have to ask ourselves is why, is, why is condemnation so necessary? What is, what is it that they're really asking here? This is something that we explore in the book. And the book is edited by me, so I write the introduction. But it's a collection of essays um, that are by various... Muslim and black activists, right, who are either being asked to condemn, you know, kind of black people or young black people, black gangs, as they refer to them, or, you know, other Muslims, Muslim groups and whatever. And through their personal stories, a lot of these um, scholars, activists, uh, artists in some cases, um, describe to us how there is this expectation that unless you condemn part of our community, something that ostensibly the larger white society doesn't understand, you are seen as a pariah, you are seen as an outsider. So when I'm having an interview with, say, somebody like Jon Snow, and Jon Snow asks me, do you condemn ISIS? The question he's really asking is, you share a faith with this group that's, you know, largely, I think most of us considered Khawarij, mm. right? But you share a faith with them. And so just to be sure that I feel that I can be safe in your presence, I want to make sure that you don't agree with them in any way. So now what we've got is an interaction where automatically assumed is that I am unsafe unless I can prove otherwise. It is not how human relationships should be. Mm. So built in is you are not worthy until you provide us a signifier that you are worthy of humanity. Otherwise, you are outside of it. Yeah. And so by constantly having to prove ourselves, what we do is we reinforce certain racial and discriminatory stereotypes about ourselves, that we are unworthy, that we have to prove ourselves constantly. Until we do, we are always a threat. And that's what really the book is about. And all the stories in the book that, you know, all of these scholars, um, you know, relate, 
kind of reinforce that idea in so many different ways. That's why the, the book in some ways is so uh, so interesting because you think that all is just in one way, which is a media interview, but there are actually in the classroom, uh, you know, amongst teachers, amongst friendships, there are like layers to this that take place on a daily basis that our community internalizes. So there are young people out there who are constantly being asked to prove their humanity. And it's so important we don't fall for that trap because what that then does is that it bases all of our relationships on their bigotry. And we should never okay that. We should never be in a situation because otherwise we we just reaffirm the fact that there is a second-class citizenry um, for us, one that we have to accept and live with, um, which I'm not willing to do. You know, I, I, I was born and raised here. I do not ever feel less than anyone else. Um, quite frankly, I speak the language better than the vast majority of this country. And so, you know, I'm not going to have anyone make me feel that, you know, I am somehow less than them. Um, alhamdulillah, I think that the book largely does that. Um, it, gets, it conveys that across. And so I'm always attuned to it whenever I hear it and see it. So, you know, I feel very sorry for people like Hussam Zamlut, who, of course, has been facing a barrage of those questions, but I think with great dignity has refused to engage. And I'm, I, I, you know, very proud when I watch him do that. Yeah, because I feel like it, it is a very, it's obviously a very intentional kind of tactic, right, that's being used because you're, you're for example, you know, it's already a high pressure environment, got, you know, way more cameras than you've got here and you've got a whole team and obviously it's a large platform, you know, there's potentially hundreds, thousands, millions of people, the whole nation watching this and it's uploaded later on on YouTube and things. And you've only got like 15, 20 minutes, whatever you have, a, a small slot to talk about whatever you need to talk about. And it's highly sensitive. And then, you know, you're put on the spot. And it's clearly a tactic because to the, again, to the general public, to the wider public, it looks like, why can't he just do something as simple as just condemn something so horrific and so heinous? So if he just does that, khalas, you know, we're happy. And we just move on with, with, the, with the discussion. Why is it so difficult to just condemn? Um, but clearly, you know, so, so to the wider public, it looks like one thing, but then you're, you have other feelings. Uh, well, I don't really right? care about how the wider public feels in that sense. I do care about how I feel. Yeah. And I feel that for me to maintain my own sense of personal dignity and honor as not only a Muslim, but as a human being, yeah. that it's so important for me to, to remind people that I am allowed to exist on my own terms as a Muslim and feel a sense of honor about myself and and you know quite frankly if the rest of society hates me for that reason then it's it's them with the problem and we cannot meet racism at racism's level right we have to either we say that these people will never learn they can never not be racist or we say that we can educate them until they accept the fact that we are a permanent part of this society and they will have to accept us on our own terms so you can't have both things at the same time you can't constantly pander to racism's demands on you uh, while at the same time saying you're equal you either accept that you're not or you say that i am equal and you have to change your ways in order to be less racist or to not be racist full stop in fact to become anti-racist mm. yeah because what i'm thinking is i mean from from your experience have you ever seen outside of a muslim or a person of color like is this question usually asked 
to anyone outside of that? Like, have you have you seen that? Because I, I personally haven't seen it, you know, uh, in, in such interviews. Well, it's the thing that I charged Jon Snow with. I said that, you know, um, I do the same work as people like Amnesty International do, and you would never pose this question to them. He said that I would. I said, and only because you have said that, right, I will answer your question. This is the one time mm. I actually condemn because Jon Snow asks me. We generally used to like Jon Snow until that moment. Yeah. And so because of that history that he has, I relented in that one moment. I still regret it to this day, but I did. And I said, okay, fine, then I do condemn them. Mm. I wish I hadn't. Um, because I never saw him ask that question of anyone again. Mm -hmm. And there were plenty of opportunities for him to do so. Lots of non-Muslims were asked by him about, you know, kind of militant groups around the world. But never once did he question whether or not they should be condemning those groups. Yeah. And so I do charge him with being a liar and a hypocrite. Um, and I have no problem saying that. And in fact, I talk about it in the introduction to my book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, because, yeah, I mean... In, in more recent um, in more recent days, you know, again coming back to Piers Morgan, I think Muhammad Hijab did ask him if he condemns, you know, the 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 the, the murdering and the killing of all these innocent Palestinians and babies and so on. And I think a number of times he just completely, you know, I think his response was, you know, I'm the one here that asks the questions. I'm not going to answer your questions, kind of thing. He just completely just sidelined it and and did not did not refuse to engage in that so did not condemn um the actions yeah no i think brother muhammad did a good job uh, in that in that moment asking him that question i think it definitely highlights the hypocrisy yeah. of um the condemnation question um but you know we should not be condemning so you know inshallah like i think um i know a lot of people have reached out to me uh, since this all began saying you know your book has really helped us yeah um kind of understand why refusing condemn, to condemn is so important. Inshallah, I hope that that others take this on too. You know, unfortunately, too many of our Muslim organizations, our scholars and our leaders are too quick to, to use that card. They think that somehow it takes the spotlight off them, that they don't seem as dangerous then. But the problem is, is that, well, what impact does that have on the Palestinians then? that level of dissociation of the, against the resistance to say that, well, we condemn the resistance because that's effectively what they're saying. That's the ultimate upshot of them condemning. But I'm sorry, you, you, you may have a, a lovely, you know, multi-million pound center, you know, where you're teaching the, the kind of the complexities of Kalam and whatever else, but you're not facing an apartheid regime on a daily basis who are you mm. as a scholar in the uk to determine for them how they resist and i think that's very problematic and i think it's a problem with the way we teach religion itself full stop and practice religion yeah so so you think there's wider um you think it does more harm basically you know if, if you if you jump to condemn or to whether you say it individually as on tv or you sign a joint statement okay you don't need to ask me just ask palestinians how they feel about it and they hurt it hurts their feelings and i and i speak to them regularly all the time and they will tell you that it hurts us when you make judgments about you know who we are and how and how we operate and how we behave, especially when you have no ability 
to verify the facts. You have an entire machinery of media across the world that is purposely misrepresenting how the resistance in Palestine has operated since 1948. And yet somehow, like your local imam from your local masjid has this keen insight into their lives and into their behaviors that, you know, they themselves don't. I'm sorry, but it's arrogance. It's an arrogance born of, of fear of what these societies will do, um, do to us. And I don't know how we teach religion like that, I'll be honest with you, Akhi. I find it deeply problematic. And, you know, when I speak to young people, young Muslims uh, in the UK, they feel so disenfranchised by this type of narrative. They feel like there is this cognitive dissonance where in the masjid they're being taught about tawheed, they're taught about tawakkul, they're taught about Allah's quwa, like they're taught to recite, la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. And then they're taught at the same time to fear the state through the actions and the behaviors of their own imma. Mm. That creates this dissonance. Mm. That either, <laughs> either you have this tawakkul or you don't. Mm. And so I think, yeah, these, these things are, are, are troubling. Um, and I think they carry consequences for our own for our own akhirah that we don't fully think of, think through. We're just thinking about the short term. How can I protect myself? How can I protect my da'wah? How can I protect my institution? Yahi, the religion does not rely upon your little um, da'wah center in Dudley. The religion is not going to, to, to rise or fall based on that. Allah has already preserved this religion. He preserved the Qur'an. The only thing you can preserve is the state of your own heart when you meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The state of your final words and actions. And if that is meeting Allah in moments, even if it's not well thought through, but a moment of khiyana, then wallahi, that, I, I would never want that to be me. And I really feel for them. I really want them to think through the consequences of what they say and what they do about the statements that they sign. Because these things carry meaning far beyond this life, this dunya, about being safe and being protected. Mm. Oh, so I want to get your kind of insight and advice on, you know, you've got you've got an average Muslim out there who feel, I mean, they feel pressured, you know, because because it is a lot of pressure, you know, whether it's uh, in your workplace or amongst your colleagues or you know whatever it might be um, in society at large. And, you know, their kind of thing is, okay, I know, I know what the answer is. I know what I believe. I know what my faith teaches me. But in that moment, like, what advice would you have for them when they feel like they're being cornered, when they feel like, you know, uh, they, have to, they, they have to condemn? And at that point, if I don't, then it's going to make me, you know, look bad. It's going to, you know, portray maybe a negative image of the Muslim community at large. What would your advice be to that person in that, in that moment? I would say it's better to stay silent than to... Um, utter a statement mm. that could hold your akhirah in jeopardy. Mm. It's so much better to stay silent because at least when you're silent, you understand that you hate something in your heart. It's still an affirmative action. Yeah. It's still something that's good and righteous. And But the moment you, you say something, the moment that something leaves your lips or that you, you sign your uh, your name to something, that has a consequence for other Muslims around the world in a negative way, 
then that's when you start becoming culpable. And I'm sorry to say, and I think we just have to be a bit real here. We are not in Amar bin Yasir's situation, right? Our lives are not on the line here. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has protected the risk of every single soul that is born into this earth, whether it's for a single second, you know, that they're alive or they're alive up until their hundreds. But their risk is protected. So there is nothing that you can say or don't say that is going to change that material fact. Having a sense of absolute tawakkul in Allah's promise, like it, honestly, it will emancipate you from that fear mm. because you know 100% that nothing that anybody can do is going to take that away from you. And all that's left is your personal relationship. That's it. Mm. And we Obviously, we're human beings and we feel scared. Don't I, I'm talking like this with a great deal of bravado, but I say at the same time that I feel scared mm. at times. But I have people around me that hold me up. I have a group of Muslim brothers and sisters who remind me of Allah, who remind me of why this work is important, who remind me that when I was uh, literally considering whether or not we should expose a royal member of the Saudi or of the Saudi family, because he was directly torturing innocent brothers and sisters in the Prophet city of Medina, that it was more important that I play the role that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given me than to worry about whether or not I'd ever be able to perform Hajj in my life. And now I can't go. Mm. But you know what? These are the moments where we, we, I think that we can really find deen, mm. not just ritual worship. Of course, the rituals are important. They're given to us as uh, as as a, a mercy and a kindness from Allah, different ways of worshiping Him, but the Deen is so much more encompassing than that, and we forget that sometimes we forget because we we religiously secularize. So here's the space of religion, mm. and here's the space of the world. Yeah, yeah. But there was no prophet that came except that he had two simultaneous messages: Tawheed and rectify society, and that's one of the stories of Shu'ib salam. Which is, you know, they're asking him, what's, what's what you're saying got to do with the marketplace? Mm. It's got everything to do with it. That's where you find religion, mm. right? And so we should not secularize between our activism, by our po politics, from what we consider to be the rituals of Islam. So I, I do say to people that, subhanAllah, you know, really, when you're confronted with that, it the, at the worst case, don't say anything at all. Just say, I don't know. It's better for you. Yeah. Than to say something that could potentially harm your akhirah. Mm. Interesting, because yeah, because I guess from what I'm understanding here is, even if off air, away from from everyone, you have a certain you have you have a view, right? Um, you have a view. Let's say you're you're against X organization, X whatever, right? Um, you brand them as whatever. You have your own personal views, but then. The actual question of being asked, do you condemn? Even if you have your own views, it's it's still not right for you at that point to condemn. Even if you even if you know deep down, okay, I don't I don't like this. You know, I am against X Y Z, right? But for you to condemn at that point, there's there's something more deeper in the questioner. Is that is that what I'm understanding correctly? Here? Yeah, sure. But I mean, I would I would I would just say that I don't think we could ever really know enough. Mm about what's going on there to, to, to have such an informed opinion about right. it, okay. right? 
-hmm. Not unless you're on the ground, not unless you're actually doing that work to be so well informed about, um, you know, what's happening uh, among the resistance. Because what we're talking about here is 75 years of occupation. Yeah. We're talking about <clears throat> resistance that has car been carried out in manifold ways, mm. including plane hijackings by Leila Khalid and George Habash during the mm. 70s. Right, including the intifadas, including so many different moments, right? Mm -hmm. And along the way, you have a whole litany of massacres from Deir Yassin to Sabra and Shatila mm -hmm. to all the bombings of Gaza. Like it's just endless. And so we place everything in a context. And it's so important for us to remind ourselves from the Quran, right? When we when we think of a story like the story of Abdullah bin Jash, mm -hmm. right? The Prophet ﷺ is angry with him when he and the other Sahaba kill some of the Quraysh during the forbidden months. He's angry. He's upset about it. And Allah Subhanahu wa Taala reveals that that ayah and ayah two hundred seventeen in Surah Baqarah, which which informs us a great sin, a great offense was committed. So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is acknowledging what's happened here. Mm. It's a great offense by the Sahabi, by the Sahaba yeah. themselves. Yeah. Right. But let's not get carried away. Mm. Let's not get carried away. Let's place it in its correct context. And what's the correct context? It's the disbelief. Mm. It's the removal from their homes. It's the barring them from the sacred house. Mm. This all sounds very familiar in our context. And how does mm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala end that ayah, which you know much better than I do? Mm. Persecution is worse than killing. Yeah. He's the one who's reminding us, don't let the context get away from you. Mm. Do not, because there was a huge media campaign, exactly how we see now. Massive media campaign against the Muslimin, against the Prophet himself. This is a man who betrays the oaths and the treaties that we have amongst one another, right? It's, you know, it's all very, very familiar. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, we, we, we get so caught up in that. And there are so many other verses in the Quran, like look at Surah Shura, right? Where we're told that if you're wronged, if an injustice has been carried out against you, you have the right to respond. Mm. The Palestinians have not even come close to responding in the way that they have been attacked and demonized and hurt and maimed and, and abused. You, you want to talk about captives? Let's talk about Ahad Tamimi. What did she do? She punched a soldier yeah. in the face, yeah. right? Someone who showed more rijala than 90% of the men of this ummah, right? Like you want to see what manhood looks like or what strength looks like? I find it more in her than I find in most of ours, right? And she was sent to prison. And the whole time she was in prison, she was resisting the prison authorities. Her book is brilliant. I really recommend that people read it mm. to get a sense of, okay, how do these people really resist? How do they keep that strength? And yeah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that taking the higher hand is good. Yeah. But who are we <clears throat> to say how somebody should respond when we've been told you can respond up until the way that you were attacked, up until that. Mm. So the Palestinians are far more humane, far more humane, far more diligent in their ethics than the Zionist state has ever been. Yeah. And, you know, there are so many ayahs like that, even Surah Hajj, you know, permission has been given to fight for those who have been wronged. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, these people have been wronged. Where are we in our condemnation in relation to that, subhanAllah? Yeah, very true. Very true. Yeah, you've shed some 
good examples from the seer, I think, which which shed a lot a lot more light because it's not like you know, it's not something new in that sense either. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I do agree with you that there, there's there's so much more, and especially you know when you when you when you see how the world has all of a sudden kind of woken up, you know, in the last 10, 11 days, um, last week or so, a couple of weeks, because of of course you know something that's happened, uh, an incident where you know innocent lives have been lost, but now all of a sudden it's taken that for the world to wake up. When like you said, there's this whole context and so many other massacres and genocides and attacks S- are taking place. Sorry, yeah. I mean, if you don't mind me just responding to the innocent lives bit, mm. look. In a asymmetric conflict, lives do get lost, okay, mm. in, in fighting. It is true, right? But can we just be real about the fact that settlers that are on the border with Gaza are armed militias, okay? And yes, uh, any, any resistance group mm. must do their utmost to ensure that, um, you know, the elderly... And the young, because obviously anybody below the age of puberty is ghanim yeah. right? We, we we know that, we respect that, okay? Yeah. They should, there are casualties, unfortunately, sometimes. But what's presented, though, as settlers being innocent civilians, settlers are, are armed militias. Mm. They've often trained and fought in the IDF. They have patrolled the West Bank and Gaza. They've been involved in operations. Settlers are not... Um, just civilians yeah. They are part of the occupying force Because they take over land mm. They maintain it And they are militarized To maintain it Just no, sorry no, no no of course no, That's true Yeah no no And, and uh, I guess the, the point I was making was That you know Everyone's kind of woken up now um, Whereas yeah there's, there's, a, there's a context And there's you know Decades and decades worth Where it's not covered The way that you know What's happening right now Is being covered And you know uh, it's it's taken this for the world to wake up, which is you know which is sad, um, and and it's disheartening as well, especially in light of even more recent years when you look at Russia Ukraine, um, and Subhanallah how the the world was taking a stand with Ukraine, um, against you know the <laughs> the invaders, occupiers, whatever you want to call them, but now with with Palestine, Subhanallah, it's, I I find it mind boggling sometimes when you just think of that. Do you know what Nelson Mandela was caught doing when he was caught? What was he called doing? Building bombs, Echi. Oh. You know, this is the interesting thing, right? Mm. Like, the ANC, in the context of apartheid in South yeah. Africa, were not a pacifist organization. Yes, they eventually came to the table mm. at the end of 94. Yeah. You know, but Mandela was a terrorist. Not mm. just like people say, oh, we, we claimed he was a terrorist, right? But he really, he was just like a mm. uh, thing. I mean, I wouldn't call him a terrorist. He was a freedom fighter. Yeah. But yeah, he was like an armed, part of the armed resistance. Mm. We have this kind of like backwards look at, at history where we reinvent it through mm. a liberal lens. So a liberal lens says there are all of these like moral uh, boundaries that you can't go outside of. Yeah. Okay. And what we'll do is that we will rewrite history to make it fit within a convenient frame. So Nelson Mandela is re, uh, rewritten into history as somebody who was a a peaceful, um, pragmatic mm. leader who helped to end apartheid, which is true about him. Yeah. But it's not why he was arrested in the first place, mm. right? Now, you find me the person, the liberal these days, who has the courage to say that what he was doing at that time was wrong, mm. right? They weren't. And why weren't they? Because apartheid is internationally recognized as a moral evil. 
that's transcendental, that goes across religions and across races. It's like, it's tawatur now, right? <laughs> that apartheid is wrong and it's evil yeah, in yeah. the South Africa context. Mm. It's amazing how those same policies that are enacted every single day mm. in Israel are not considered the same way. Mm. And yet there is a direct similitude here. You know, if, yeah. if Mandela was Palestinian and doing what Mandela then was doing now, he's what? How is he described? How is he understood? Mm. As a terrorist, yeah. right? And so we have to, we have to refuse a liberal framing uh, around this entire area. Because the liberal framing is what, what denies us our ability to exercise our ethics and to really provide the support that Palestinians need, which is to not hold them in contempt for wanting their liberation, for mm. wanting their freedom, for desiring it, for being oppressed for so long. And in such an abusive way that they have no means of, uh, of really exercising any authority except through um, the resistance that they've uh, that they've been displaying mm. and and guess what the ordinary person is saying carry on over there they're not saying oh my god what kind of fitna have you brought on our heads watch the videos mm. what are they consistently saying they're saying we're not we're not leaving this place mm. and we're telling you to carry on doing what you're doing yeah. you know and yeah. so you have to listen to that voice sometimes absolutely. and pay attention to it absolutely so before before we move on, because because you mentioned like international law and things, so I want to come back to that, um, linking it back to Israel. But just before before we finish up here, <clears throat> I did want to try again another kind of like almost like an exercise, a life scenario, uh, which is I don't think I can I can really you know I'm I'm no expert anyway, I'm not media trained, but I'm going to try, and uh, it, it's more it's not really even media. Let's just have a conversation, right? Where you know we're we're friends, and I'm kind of you know. On, on one side, you're on the other side, and I'm asking you to condemn. Because I just want to just, I think for the listeners, I think this would be quite useful. Um, day to day, how, how it kind of plays <laughs> well, out. Well, I don't know if this is very good because I, I lost friends who asked me to oh, condemn. Really? <laughs> <laughs> but inshallah, I, don't, I understand this is yeah, a, yeah. a hypothetical so, exercise. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, <laughs> hypothetically, it can, it can help some people. So yeah, yeah sure. I'm, not, I'm not really prepped for this, but I'll try to put a bit of pressure on you and, and see see where it goes, right? So um, let's just, let's even just, let's just say this is... Uh, uh, it's not even a specific scenario. Let's just, this is, it's a made up scenario, right? There's, something's happened. Something bad has happened. There's X group and, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm standing with one side. You're, you're with, you're, you're with one side. And I'm going to ask you to basically condemn the group, right? Um, there's no names. So I'm just going to, we're just going to play, play it general. Let's just see, see, see where it goes. So, um, uh, Dr. Asim, how, how do you feel about the events that uh, took place in, in the last few days? You, you know, you've, you've seen it in the news. It was really horrible. Some, you know, I think it was about five, 600 people. Um, innocent people, children, women, elderly included, um, they lost their lives. It was really sad. But what are your thoughts? What are your takes on this? Yeah, I mean, I think what happened at the Al Ahli Hospital is really um, terrible. You know, like mm. uh, five hundred people, they say, lost their lives in a single, in a single blast. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's really awful what happened. You know, what the Israelis did to them. You know, Al Jazeera's just done this investigation, showed that Israel was responsible for that strike. Yeah. Um, it's very compelling their evidence that they've got, and so Israel, you know, is is clearly yet again uh, abusing the Palestinian people. Seems like I mean, uh, you, you're saying quite confidently that it was uh, Israel, um, but there, there's been other, uh, you know, 
uh, independent inquiries and investigations done, which, which seems to suggest that actually it was uh, it was from the inside. So how do you so kind of confidently, um, uh, you know, pin pin the blame on on Israel? Well, for a start, you know, the Israeli state has on numerous occasions lied. Um, I simply don't trust them to begin mm. with. But I also trust the views of people on the ground. And as somebody who has done uh, field work for the last 20 years, you know, I'm very, very attuned to how those on the ground describe events as opposed to how states attempt to uh, describe events. And what the fact the that Israel of- had kept consistently kept on changing its narrative, especially mm. in the early hours, tells us a lot about the fact that they were not uh, that they were trying to get ahead of what was effectively going to be a media storm. What about the the likes of, you know, you've got the president of the USA, Joe Biden, you've got the BBC, you know, you've got a, a lot of, you know, authoritative figures um, and, and platforms um, stating stating otherwise. So again, you know, how, how can you so confidently pin this on, on, on Israel? So we have to understand how a system of violence works. I think uh, part of the conceit that unfortunately many Muslims have is that they believe they live in fair and just societies and they haven't come to fully acknowledge yet that a system of violence is not just a military. It is a government. It is the media. It is an entire ecosystem that reinforces certain narratives. And so, for example, you'll find that the BBC were very, very quick to um, run with the story about children being beheaded. They were very quick to run with stories about there being tunnels underneath hospitals Mm. and so on and so forth. And you see this very, very quick response to official narratives that come from Israel. And yet, as soon as Israel does something that is, I mean, everything Israel does is unconscionable. It is an unconscionable state, Mm. but even further unconscionable by their own standards, then you see how measured they are in their defense of Israel. And so I think what we have to understand is that the BBC is not an independent source, that generally speaking, the Western media does play a role in protecting Israel's image. I mean, the United States know more than anyone else. Like, you know, when Joe Biden says something, it's literally after Israeli is the last person that I would actually take seriously because this is a country that has consistently used its veto power in the Security Council of the UN in order to stop any form of condemnation of anything that Israel has done over the last 75 years. And so even though they know the facts on the ground, even though that they know about the settlements, even though they know about the apartheid regime and the violence and the captives and the abductions of children, still they use their veto power to protect it. How do we trust a state like that exactly? Mm. How can we trust a state that has perpetuated its own violence against Muslim lives so easily? Um, and so... You know, I think in that you find my answer, which is I find it very easy to believe the Palestinian version of events. You speak, you speak very um, strongly, uh, uh, you know, against Israel. Um, you know, which which I can understand f- from your point of view. Um, however, especially factoring in the events that took place just a, a week or so before that, um, where you know many many Israeli lives were claimed um, in the thousands, 
Um, do you not think, especially considering that Israel would usually um, notify, whether it's the hospital, hospital or elsewhere, for them to evacuate? You know, at least they're giving some kind of notice, you know, 24 hours or so. Do you feel like, you know, this was inevitable based on what uh, the, the, the massacre that they had faced? The notice is a charade. Everything <clears throat> is a charade. Everything is for public perception and for maintenance of this image that Israel is the most moral democracy in the Middle East and that has the most moral army in the world. This is not the daily reality of Palestinians, even before this incident. Their daily reality is this is a state that is willing to kill and abduct and threaten. A, a, a Palestinian friend of mine in the West Bank, literally yesterday, he messaged me on, on, on Facebook, somebody that I spent time with in 2004 when I was traveling around there. And he said, I just wanted to show you this video of what, of what Israeli forces did. Uh, you know, it's just a video of his son at his computer desk, just doing his thing. And all of a sudden, this is late at night, these soldiers come barging into their house for no reason whatsoever, other than just because they felt like it. These guys are not doing anything. We can see the shock in the child's face. They're just literally having an evening together at home as a family. This is the daily reality. I remember being in a restaurant in Ramallah in 2004 with all of my Palestinian friends. We were having a great time. All of a sudden, these loud bangs, 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 and a megaphone screaming the names of certain people. The, the, the restaurant closed the doors and the shutters and everything, and we were all huddled underneath these, these tables in the restaurant. And... Um, I was asking my friend, what, whose names are these? Are they your names? Are they our names? Whose names are they? And they said that these are the names of all the children that live in the local area. Those are sound bombs. They're not actual bombs. And it's just to entice them to come out to throw stones at them so they have a reason to, um, to pick them up and attack them. And that incident has always remained with me. It's remained with me for almost 20 years now. Um, it's not something that you can forget easily. And it was just a reminder to me of the level of brutality of the of this settler colonial Zionist apartheid regime mm. that we are talking about here. This is not a moral army. This is not a moral force. This is a blight. This is a stain on on humanity. This is a stain on every single Muslim's conscience. This is a stain on the akhirah of those who live in the Arab world who have constantly and consistently betrayed these people. And of course, and those of us who have the risk to, to help and to try and assist in any way that we can. It's a burden that we carry mm -hmm. because they are dealing with things every single day and they will have their excuses before Allah. I don't think we do. I don't think we have any excuses whatsoever. Let's talk about the Palestinian resistance. The Palestinian resistance have been resisting an occupation for 75 years. One that is subject to apartheid. And because of that reason, we should say that we support the Palestinians in the defense of themselves, in the defense of their lives, in the defense of their children, in the defense of their land, in the defense of Al-Aqsa, by any means necessary that they deem fit. Whatever they do does not mean that it is actions that we have to replicate anywhere. We have our own context. We have our own ulema. We have our own way of supporting them. 
But what we say to them is that we have your back, whatever you do, because you are the ones who are fighting on the ground. You are the ones who are resisting. You are the ones who are holding Al-Aqsa in honor. And if you have decided that that is the way that you want to approach it, then we will never betray you. And I think that's the only place that we can be because they have ulama, they have um, institutions, they have their own people, they have a number of different groups. And when you see that the secularists over there are refusing to condemn the Muslim groups and are saying, in fact, this is part of the resistance, the collective resistance, all of our resistance, then we should take a lesson from that and say, you know, if these people, you know, who don't necessarily have that same level of, of connection from the perspective of Iman are able to say that, then why can't we say that as well? And I think we should say it. We should say it loudly. We should say it proudly. And we should be willing to take risks to make sure that everyone hears that, that we are proud of the resistance. I don't think I did a great job, but uh, no, I, I appreciate the answers, and uh, it definitely, it definitely does does help um, put things into context, um, and you know, kind of frame things in the way that I guess they should be framed. So I wanted to ask um, about, uh, as I mentioned earlier, about you know international law. I know it's uh, something that you're quite familiar with. You do a lot of work around. Um, I guess for for a complete layperson, the question might be, okay. Um, you know, I'm just looking at, for example, Amnesty International is just one one example. You go on there and it will clearly say, okay, what Israel are doing basically is contravenes um, international humanitarian law as an example, right? And then so you've got people sitting there just thinking, okay, so if, if what they're doing is so wrong and if all of these from, from you know, Amnesty to this organization to UN or whatever are saying, you clearly are doing something wrong, then how do they keep getting away with it? It's a simple question, but yeah, how do they keep getting away with it? So part of my area of expertise in my master's um, many moons ago was in the laws of armed conflict, okay. what's often known as um, the use in bello or international humanitarian law. So this is the law that comes in when hostilities begin. Mm -hmm. So regardless of the right or wrong of a conflict, yeah. as soon as the conflict begins, a whole series of laws that are predominantly governed by the Geneva Conventions kick in to protect civilian life and to protect combatants as well, protect um, heritage sites, so on and so forth, mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of pastors and imams and chaplains and whatever, right? All of these laws come together. And this is a long history. Um, you know, when we were reading our textbooks uh, on this subject, they often the textbooks would uh, reference uh, the Prophet but often they would actually refer to it as Abu Bakr and saying, you know, don't attack women and children, mm. don't um, uh, attack vegetation, mm. you know, crops, yeah, so on and yeah. so forth. And of course, they often use the example of uh, Salahuddin Ayyubi during the Third Crusade, um, making a specific allowance for the Order of St. John to be able to um, pick up those who had been injured. Mm. Now, generally speaking, uh, uh, our ulama around the world have agreed that even if there is something in international humanitarian law yeah that and this is even amongst like the jihadi scholars right you'll mm. be very surprised some of those that are very very famous names take this view mm. that this is something that should be respected okay right that that increasing protections increasing goodness between opposing forces is something that should be kind of respected so even like with the example of Salahuddin 
there was no specific mandate that allows for medical personnel to be protected, mm. right? But because this is something that increases goodness yeah. in a very difficult situation, it's something that should be respected. And so mm. they say, okay, look, if both sides are reciprocal in the way that they operate, then, you know, that's a good thing and that yep. should be encouraged. <clears throat> the problem is, is that international law is just a game, mm. you know, and I, I learned that the hard way doing this work where when I was kind of a young master student, I was very kind of like, wow, you know, mm. the Geneva Conventions, this is so great, so humane, so on and so mm. forth, only to realize that actually it's only ever used by the powerful against the weak. Right. So when the powerful breach international law and commit grievous war crimes, they are always either reframed as, oh, that was just like an, an individual soldier who went against what he was allowed to do, mm. right? Never systemic, which it nearly always is. There's always somebody who gives the order. Right. And so what you find is that largely it's used as a tool against the oppressed okay. in order to limit them in their ability to be able to adequately respond. I think as Muslims, we have, we have bought into a liberal framing mm -hmm. of how we respond and react a little bit too much. I personally think that if it's reciprocal, it should always be respected. So that's my bottom line, right? Absolutely. But in a situation like uh, the the Zionist, settler colonial Zionist apartheid occupation mm. uh, of by Israel of Palestinian land, that ultimately it's not respected there at all. Mm. And, you know, for Muslims who, who keep on referring to the Geneva Conventions as if it's somehow going to protect the Palestinian people, like, you know, the reality is that Sometimes we we present a, a liberal history of the Prophet that, you know, is is a bit unwarranted. Mm -hmm. You know, so for example, when the Prophet laid siege to Banu Nadir, mm -hmm. right? They 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 were in their fortifications, they locked up, they locked up shop, everything. So what did the Prophet do? He said, burn their crops. Mm -hmm. So they shout down to him. They're like, you're not permitted to do that. Mm. <laughs> it's a, it's quite a unique moment where yeah, they try yeah. to teach him about the Sharia, right? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. why are you burning the crops? <laughs> and what's his answer? He says, this is war, mm. right? Even stories that are very inconvenient for most of our ulama, like that of Ka'b bin Ashraf, mm. we don't cite them because mm. we're scared to cite them. We say, oh, that's, that's an inconvenient story. It presents Prophet ﷺ in a light that we're uncomfortable with mm. because we've tied ourselves to a liberal narrative about the way that religion works. Mm. The Prophet ﷺ was not conservative. He was not liberal. He was the messenger of Allah who was guided by Allah directly. Mm. He acted appropriately in every single circumstance that he was in. And it is not on us to reframe the Sharia in a light that makes it convenient for us because we're worried about what white people might think, mm. right? And so I think we have to move away a little bit from international law as being some kind of moral guide for us. Yeah. I think it's useful in the sense that we should use it in order to highlight their hypocrisies, yeah. but it's not the thing that is going to get out of this, um, us out of this quagmire. I think what we have to do rather is a return to our own ethics, our own conceptions of how we see conflict, of how we see the way through these things, how how we build solidarity for one another. And I think if we can do that effectively and we can really internalize it, 
then we'll see new forms of solidarity being built mm. that we have denied ourselves up until now. And I think, inshallah, that, that could be a really positive way forward. Inshallah. So what, what, what are some of the things that you think, you know, alhamdulillah, you know, we spoke a little bit about social media, how, you know, the, 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 the you know, we're kind of owning that kind of narrative and uh, a lot of positive work being done there. And then you've got rallies and things like that. But just on like a final note, you know, as, as Muslims in particular, because, you know, no doubt this isn't just a, you know, something, just a Muslim issue in the sense that, you know, the, the world needs to wake up to this. It is, it is, it is a, a humanitarian issue, but especially for us as Muslims with Al-Aqsa, with Al-Quds, with Jerusalem, you know, it, it is our issue at the end of the day. We're going to own that. Um, so for us in particular, and especially this, mashallah, this kind of younger generation who, mashallah, on social media, they have these platforms um, and they're very much, you know, kind of motivated to do something more. Maybe they feel disheartened. Um, maybe they feel like they're not doing enough. Um, what would your kind of final piece of advice be? So my, my final piece of advice is that, you know, as capitalism has taught us that um, everything can be measured, that efficacy is something that is measurable. Mm -hmm. And that is, we have not been taught that in the Quran. We have always been taught that the, the result is always with Allah. And actually all we can do is act and behave as ethically as we can. Mm -hmm. Right? That is the recommendation. Like, uh, fear Allah and be, co be conscious and mindful of Allah as much as you are able. Mm. Now, especially those of us who live in the West, we have a burden that comes with the kind of risk that we have. So, for example, our passports are more powerful than most other passports. Mm. So we can travel all over the world. We can do yeah. things that other people simply cannot do because it's easy for us to do it. We can, can write, we can talk, we can um, tweet, we can do all these things that say, for example, it's much harder for somebody in Egypt to do. Mm. And so we have to start off by taking into account all the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us. If you are a writer, then there is a burden that comes with that penmanship that you have. You cannot simply ignore it and say, I was given this gift by Allah, but I'm not going to use it in any meaningful way. We have to look at the resources that we each individually have mm. and assess to ourselves how is this? How is this? What Allah Subhanahu wa Taala this this gift that He's given me? How is this going to be useful in any way? And so it's not necessarily about what can we achieve, yeah. as much as it is how can we conceive of ourselves in a way that is constantly pushing the boundaries of what we are capable of. If you are an entrepreneur, mm. you should be thinking to yourself, this is your skill in life that Allah gave you. You should be thinking to yourself, how can I how can I maximize this skill for the sake of oppressed Muslims around the world? Okay, uh, if you are very eloquent, Allah Subhanahu wa has given you the gift of speech, and we know that even amongst the Sahaba, there were some who yeah. were specifically given this gift, and the Prophet admired that about them. Yeah. How are you using your voice, right? How are you using your voice to speak truth? Because unfortunately, for those of us who have been given certain skills, those who can write and whatever, there is a burden attached to it, which is if you don't use it in an mm. effective way, if you don't use it at least partially for the sake of, of others, then it's something that you could potentially be accounted for. And so unlike maybe other people will say, you have to do X, Y, and Z prescriptively. I don't say yeah. that. I say for a start, bare minimum is hate what you see in your heart as a professor. So don't, don't fall into that apathy mm. because that apathy will kill you. It will kill you in a way that no bullet can, right? Make sure that your heart is alive. And the way to do that is by witnessing and bearing witness and constantly being connected mm. to their plight. 
But then after that, think to yourself, what tools have I got? What has Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala given me that I can give back? And if it is only that you can press the retweet button, then do that. And don't we'll belittle Reshare these days. Then don't, retweet. Yeah, share. <laughs> don't, don't, don't belittle it. Mm. Because if your heart has ikhlas in that moment, then you don't know the value of that on your qiyamah. Mm-hmm. Right? Because Allah has never told us that when you get a certain number of people, then I will grant you victory. He's yeah, never yeah, said that to never. us. That the Quran says the exact opposite. If you die in a ditch of fire or if you're crucified by your opposite hand and foot, then those are the muflihun, those are the mm. successful runs, right? Mm. So we have a different framing for what uh, engagement looks like, for what success looks like. Our success can actually look like failure, mm. right? True. If we take risks, if we push ourselves, if we stand between those who are oppressing the Palestinians, right? And the Palestinians themselves, if we stand in between those two people as a line of defense and say, we are willing to take those risks on your behalf, even if it means the end of our jobs, even if it means that, you know, we get into detention, even if whatever that means, right? That is the kind of risk taking that will really elevate us because it will inspire others to do that as well. And that is the thing that they fear most are people who act with their conscience more than the fear that they have of what the state is capable of doing. Mm. And inshallah, I, I hope that we can mobilize enough one day to actually get there. I think we're still a little bit early in our journey, but inshallah, one day we'll get there. Inshallah, inshallah. So alhamdulillah, you know, we've spoken about some some important, serious uh, topics, you could say, um, very relevant. Uh, I do want to end just by asking a bit more lighter question, you know, arguably a bit lighter, which is... Uh, <laughs> How many books are you reading uh, these days? <laughs> because I think last, uh, I know this is probably a pod, another episode in and of itself, but uh, I still remember when you when you were talking about how you were reading about 100 books or so, getting through 100 books or so in, in a year, yeah. which mashallah for, for, for the majority of people are like, wow, you know, that's, that's, that's a lot, alhamdulillah, which is great. But yeah, uh, was that was that a lockdown thing? Were you still kind of continuing that? No, it's been since childhood. Yeah? Like, alhamdulillah. Like, I'm, alhamdulillah. I've always been a big reader since I was very young. Alhamdulillah. Um, you know, it's... Uh, like anything else, right? Uh, it's the skill that I identified that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave me. And so I, I wanted to make sure that I kept, kept on nourishing it. Um, it's something that I enjoy at the same time. But it's mm. also the, the thing that allows me to try and be an expert in my area. When I started this work, I kind of made a, an agreement with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that uh, I would spend my life trying to be the best expert in my area that I possibly could. And so that is the goal. I may never reach it, but I want to keep to that promise that I made Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if I can. And so I read and learn and talk to people and do investigation work as much as I possibly can to try and get to that to that goal. For the, Obviously for the sake of uh, worshipping him and for the sake of this ummah. Um, yeah, I think it's good for us to set goals for ourselves. Um, you know, alhamdulillah, I, I, I don't sleep much. I wake up early. I go to sleep late. Um, I like to read a lot. And so sometimes I fall off the wagon, though, with the reading. Like, <laughs> yeah, we get busy. You yeah, know, we're course. traveling. You know, sometimes yeah. you go through low periods. Sometimes you just want to watch something, mm. you know. But alhamdulillah, it's, uh, it's a blessing to be able to read a lot. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Dr. Asim, it's been a, a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. And hopefully, um, you know, those listening have benefited and can take take a lot of substance away from today's episode. Barakallah.